0: and welcome to this Bright Club Highlights podcast showcasing the best bits from the September 2012 Bright Club animal, vegetable or mineral. Coming up we'll hear naughty songs about sheep, how Twitter owes everything to quantum physics, and how unwanted blood is helping in the fight against malaria. Listeners of a nervous disposition be warned, many of the sets in this podcast contain a fair amount of swearing. And speaking of swearing, our first performer studies language What goes on in the brain when we hear someone speak? And why is it that it's so much harder to learn a new language as we age? Matt Davis is based at the MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit and is trying to answer just these questions. To start off with, what areas of the brain are involved in understanding speech? So what what areas of your brain are active right now when you're listening to me?
1: Well, so there's obviously not not one area of the brain but a network of areas of the brain in fact more than one network but two or three different networks that we think are engaged um, so I think of language as uh, a skill that ex- is expressed across perhaps uh, the majority of the different areas of your brain um, but generally what we know is that it tends to be strongly lateralized. so if you're 99% of right-handers and probably about 90% of left-handers, language will be dominant in the left hemisphere of the brain. Uh, we knew that um, before the days of brain imaging because people who have strokes or other kinds of brain injury that affect the left hemisphere are more likely to have an impairment in speaking or understanding. And Brain imaging has confirmed many of the, the same patterns. So. Uh, Broca's area is uh, in the frontal lobe so here I am touching the left-hand side of my forehead um, and that underneath there is Broca's area um, and if you have a stroke that uh, damages that part of the frontal lobe your speech will be described as non-fluent so you'll uh, you'll perhaps struggle to get the words out clearly. Uh, Wernicke's aphasia uh, is associated with damage further back in the brain. So now I've got my hand just over my left ear. Uh, just behind the left ear and above is Wernicke's area. Um, the original description was of patients who had problems understanding language, and that those were more apparent than problems producing. But in fact, uh, Wernicke's aphasics will often produce a form of speech that's, that's fluent. So the words come out in a fluent flow, uh, but sometimes they'll make mistakes in producing words and pro- or produce uh, new words made up words when instead of real words and so in both kinds of brain injury you can often see problems in comprehension as well as in production
0: and you mentioned um, sort of 99% of right-handed people it's left lateralized and 90% of left-handed people it's left lateralized in the people where language tends to be in the right hemisphere do you mm. see a sort of A corresponding area that you would perhaps describe as Broca's or Wernicke's area, but it's just on the wrong side of the brain.
1: Um, That's a very good question. I haven't personally done a lot of brain imaging work with left-handers. It's one of the unfortunate things that I have to tell left-handed volunteers that because we're looking for commonalities across multiple brains, it's made much easier by scanning right-handers. Now, my understanding is that Broca's area and Wernicke's area are the to parts of the network that tend to lateralize strongly, um, but actually there's a whole other set of areas, particularly in the left temporal lobe, which have much clearer homologues on the right side. Um, and so even in a, a right-hander, even in someone like me, they will light up uh, more or less symmetrically on both sides during comprehension. Um, and one of the challenges for the kind of research that I'm doing and my colleagues in Cambridge are doing is to figure out exactly what contributions the left and the right hemisphere make separately and together in different tasks.
0: You mentioned that the first way that we sort of realized that about which sort of areas of the brain were involved in language is because of people who had damaged areas of those brain were less able to construct sentences or understand language. What has the advent of brain imaging how, how much more has it allowed us to understand?
1: I think one of the interesting things that brain imaging has given us is a view of the way that language uh, isn't just confined to Broca's and Wernicke's area, but has spread across many other areas of the brain. So um, there are areas of the anterior temporal lobe, um, which are very rarely damaged by strokes or other kinds of damage to the blood supply to the brain. Um So those are areas which weren't often seen to be uh, damaged in stroke patients and therefore we didn't suspect classically that uh, they were involved in language. But when we do brain imaging, we often see them light up. Uh, If you look at other other kinds of conditions, some forms of dementia also impact on those areas and cause language deficits. And and I think of this as as an example of how um, brain imaging has told us some of the things that we knew already have been confirmed but it's actually expanded our horizons it's shown us the way in which language overlaps with other other systems for memory for action uh, for uh, semantic comprehension Uh, and and so actually language is something that is at least in in my belief sort of it's not confined area of the brain or confined set of areas. It's actually, you know, in the way that we can describe any of our experiences Well, we're using language to talk about any of many brain systems.
0: And I guess being able to use techniques like MRI means that you can look at what's going on in real time rather than looking after the fact at perhaps damage or things like that.
1: Absolutely. Um, and, and that's an area that uh, is expanding rapidly. So we've talked a lot about MRI. Uh, magnetic resonance imaging, which gives us uh, very spatially precise information, so very detailed pictures on a millimetre by millimetre basis. Uh, what we have also at the Cognition and Brain Sciences u- Unit is a technique called magnetoencephalography, or MEG, uh, which gives us information on a millisecond by millisecond basis. So actually what we can do is track how the brain is responding not uh, to a whole sentence, but actually to an individual speech sound and as those speech sounds unfold during a sentence.
0: And one of the techniques that um, you've used is the idea of using distorted speech to mm. test people. How, how? What can we learn from using things like vocoding and sine wave speech to test people's perception of language?
1: It's, uh, it's a topic that's very close to my heart. Um, and and it's really the most striking demonstration Um Of one of the processes that is really key to understanding perception uh, not just of speech but perception of lots of different kinds of things which is that what you know about the world, what you know about what you're going to hear or see can change the way in which you perceive the the way that you hear or see it. Uh, So for um, sine wave speech it's particularly striking what sounds like whistles, if you've got that clue about what you're going to hear it suddenly turns into
0: speech so here's an example of the sine wave speech that Matt was talking about.
2: It was a sunny day and the children were going to the park.
0: But if you hear this...
2: It was a sunny day and the children were going to the park.
0: And then the sine wave speech...
2: It was a sunny day and the children were going to the park.
0: The distorted speech becomes much clearer. And this
1: illustrates uh, an aspect of perception uh, that psychologists have called top-down processing. Um, so the idea that your higher level knowledge can change the lower-level processes involved in hearing speech sounds. Now, that was a very controversial topic in psychology, uh, but the tools that we have with functional MRI and also increasingly now with MEG give us the opportunity to measure the brain's response to different kinds of speech sounds and really see those top-down processes in real time.
0: And does it tell us anything about the way that we learn language when we're young?
1: Uh, another good question. Um, I mean, those that research is uh, really in its infancy. Um, there are studies that uh, we've been trying to get off the ground look, using these different kinds of speech with uh, younger volunteers, uh, in particular in collaboration with Usha Goswami and others in Cambridge looking at uh, individuals with dyslexia, for instance. Uh, it's very hard to Put children in a lab and discover things that they're better than adults at. Uh, but language learning is one of those. Um, there's this idea of critical periods in the brain that you know you have to acquire a certain skill before a certain age, or, or the the plasticity, the neural changes that allow learning seem to be blocked somehow. Uh, from my own research, what I what I want to find out is what's changing in the brain as people get older. Uh, what might we do? Uh, to reopen that plasticity to allow people to learn or adapt or adjust in order to help people learn a second language or help people who've had a brain injury that impacts on language. Good evening. (laughs) So I'm I'm a brain scientist. I study what's going on in your brain right now. When you're hearing words and understanding what someone's saying, are you understanding what I'm saying? Good. Good. You... Yeah. OK, OK. Well, part of the problem is what's going on in my brain at the moment, where it's going, what the fuck
3: am I doing here?
1: <laughs> but I'm going to stay calm. I'm going to cope with the pressure. I'm going to try and get my words out straight. And that's something for which, you know, you have to, have to turn to the professionals for a really clear example of that. Uh, so, so this is a recording of someone uh, from Radio 4.
4: What's happening in the course of the
1: next hour? Well, first up after the news, I'm going to be talking to Jeremy Cunt and Hunt the Culture Secretary. <laughs> Broadband. It's 8 o'clock on Monday, the 6th of December. So that, that, that choking sound, uh, I think that's a bit of a giveaway for a neuroscientist like me. I can tell exactly what's going on in his brain. How the fuck am I going to save my job? <laughs> Now, now you may laugh, but you don't remember Dickie Davis, possibly. So, nineteen seventies, World of Sport, yeah, ITV. So, uh, picture the scene. It's nineteen seventy-eight, uh, somewhere between the two-thirty horse race at Haydock Park and uh, Big Daddy play fighting with giant haystacks. <laughs> Dickie Davis introduces the latest news from the FA Cup by saying. Now it's time for the cocksucker. <laughs> uh, a brilliant TV career ended just like that. But I think we all know what was on his mind. <laughs> now now I've been swearing quite a lot, and there, there's worse to come, so I'm fucking glad that my mum's not in the audience. <laughs> Though perhaps she'll be watching on YouTube later. Oh sorry, mum. Now what i've noticed is that every time i swear i feel a little bit better <laughs> now it's a funny thing actually it's been scientifically proven that swearing kills pain so if you uh, some scientists at kill university they got they got people to stick their hands in a bucket of ice cold water now, what they found, as well as you know, people being in pain, as you might expect, uh, was that those people who, are, who uh, called the experimenter a fucker could keep their hands in the bucket for twenty percent longer. <laughs> so swearing works; swearing kills pain. Now, now let's go back. Skipped a bit there. Let's go back to uh, our old friend Jim Naughty of uh, Cunt on Radio Four fame and. Jeremy Hunt, the uh, the minister on the receiving end. Well, what was it that was actually going on in Jim Naughty's brain at that moment? Well, uh, as a neuroscientist, I know a little bit about that. Uh, and it's a process called competitive cueing. Now, this isn't the latest sport that we, that Britain's going to win Olympic medals at. <laughs> this is the process that goes on in your, your frontal lobe, so this bit here, when it's uh, receiving words from the Temporal lobe, this bit here. And it's trying to turn that series of words into sounds that come out of your mouth. Now, there's a, a, a cue, an orderly cue, you know, a nice structured cue like we have in Britain. Uh, but sometimes a few of those sounds can jump the cue. And before you know it, you've called the MP for Southwest Surrey a cunt. <laughs> so, what's the aftermath of that? Well, you'll, you'll be pleased to hear that uh, Jim Naughty is still in a job. Jeremy Hunt, on the other hand, he, <laughs> he, he's actually got promoted. <laughs> Unbelievable, but true. He's now, he's now health secretary. Um, and actually, it's, it's not a bad move, David Cameron. I mean, Jeremy Hunt, health secretary. Health secretary, Jeremy Hunt. It's pretty safe. You know, there's no opportunity for calling him rude words. But it turns out that Jeremy Hunt is a supporter of homeopathy. So he's in charge of £120 billion a year. That's what we spend on the NHS. And he thinks it's a great idea if we spend that money on sugar pills and bullshit. (laughs) So I I reckon Jim Naughty got it right. (laughs) Now, as I say, uh, swearing... (sighs) Here I am in a moment of great stress. It's fucking good to swear feels so much better but you've got to get the right swear words i mean you know an extreme moment of tension like this deserves a really hard fuck <laughs> if i'd just stub my toe you know maybe something milder a bugger or something like that would probably be more appropriate now now how do you know the right swear words to use in any particular situation well actually there was some research on this <laughs> In fact, it was, swe- it was researched by the BBC. The BBC wanted to work out what swear words people could use on telly. Now, it, it used to be, back in the day, that any swear word was off limits. You know, if you watched uh, a prison sitcom on the BBC, the rudest thing that one prisoner would say to each other is, naff off. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really got the punch that you'd expect. And then, then in the 90s, uh, the sitcom writers started making up their own swear words. So, if you do you remember Red Dwarf? Did anyone remember Red Dwarf? What was the swear word in Red Dwarf? Smeg. Yes, yeah, smeg, smeghead, smeg this, smeg that, and and you actually found people at school calling each other smeghead. I don't know, never worked for me, but then I am Jewish. A little appreciation. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, so so the, the BBC, though, in, a, in 2000, they decided, enough of this. We've got to let people use swear words, proper swear words, the ones that kill the pain. And which ones are we going to allow people to use? Well, we, we've got to have a rating scale, you know, so you know how far up the scale you can go, depending on the time of day. Now, you'll be surprised... Perhaps not surprised to hear that uh, Jim Naughty's favourite C-word is top of the list. Number one, uh, top swear word, never allowed to be said on the BBC, unless you have to be Jim Naughty. <laughs> but if you go further down the list, there's a few surprises in store. So, uh, twat, for instance. Perfectly good swear word, as far as I'm concerned. So, number 13 on the BBC list, uh, just above arse, which... If you think about it, that's anatomically correct. <laughs> now, now, twat and cunt mean pretty much the same thing, as far as I can work out. But it turns out that twat is less than three times as rude as cunt. And it's scientifically been shown by this survey. But it's still quite a rude word. It's not a, ru- not a word that you'd slip into everyday conversation. Unless you happen to live in the Shetland Islands, where there's a village called twat. <laughs> I can picture the postcard now. <laughs> not good. Now there's actually quite quite a lot of uh, swear words that have this sort of double duty. So uh, the word prick, for instance, number 7 on the BBC list is definitely not a word that you'd use on children's TV unless perhaps you were telling the story of Sleeping Beauty. And so It seems it's not the meaning of a swear word that makes it rude, it's also not the sound of the swear word that makes it rude. You know, they they come and go, they change depending on the time of the day or what you're talking about, whether it's rude or whether it's not, whether it's a word that you can't say or the place that you live. And that's especially true if you happen to move to the Austrian village of fucking. (laughs) Now, Now, if you go to fucking, as many people do, when they're on holiday in Austria, a nice tourist visit, uh, you'll see that around every road sign that has the name of the the town written on it, there's lots and lots of CCTV cameras. (laughs) See, the problem they had was that people wanted to make their own tourist postcards. (laughs) I wonder if they have the same problem in the Essex village of Fingeringhoe. So I guess the moral of this evening's lecture is that we we really don't know very much about what makes a swear word a swear word. It's not the meaning, it's not the sound. You've got to listen to what someone's saying, do some figuring out as to whether whether you should laugh or cry, whether you should hate, whether it's going to relieve your pain or be suitable for telly or not. And so just... illustrate that one last time I'm going to tell you tell you the last joke of the evening and this one is for my mum. Did you hear about the man who drowned in a bowl of muesli? He got pulled under by a strong current.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Matt Davis there. Now time for our first musical interlude from master of the accordion Dan Woods.
3: Now, uh, one of my ambitions in life is to get a job as a midwife. And um, (laughs) uh, I wrote this song to explain why I want to do that. Babies, lovely babies, a newborn child is a miracle. And all the other midwives will agree It's the most amazing sight you'll ever see And though they come out bloody And they all have funny hair Let me tell you, buddy Why you'll find me there I want to eat your placenta You have what I want to eat I fry it in garlic and butter It comes out so tender and sweet How can there be such a flavour In meat that's so so lean Why don't you come round for dinner Maybe you'll see what I mean Babies pretty babies to see a birth is incredible and every single day it warms my heart each time I get to watch a new life start but if you catch me winking as I'm begging you to push Guess what I am thinking as I'm staring at your bush? I want to eat your placenta, roast it with some rosemary and sage. The older the mother, the tougher the meat, but the flavour will develop with age. If you are having a party, throw it on the barbecue. If you think that placenta would scare them, you can melt it away in a stew. I want to eat your placenta, make a marinade with chilies and some zest. All of my meals are delicious, but teenage mothers really are the best. Some people think that I'm crazy. But it's worth it for the taste. That's why you'll find me at nightfall going through the bins of human waste.
0: Now it's time to move from placentas to the mysterious world of quantum physics with University of Cambridge researcher Michael Contario.
4: I'm Michael Contario. I'm doing a PhD in quantum physics. And before we get started, I just need to apologise. I've been slightly ill, so if I have to blow my nose during the middle of the set, it's been a bit annoying because it means I've been stopped in my research of unravelling the mysteries of the universe by the common cold. Damn you, biology, you win this one! (laughs) That wasn't supposed to get a woo. (laughs) Uh, No, well, I'm I'm a quantum physicist, and some of my mates who I work with asked me why I wanted to come and do this talking to people (laughs) about my research. Uh, And I thought I'd explain with two stories. Two, two stories. So firstly... When I was at sick form, just coming up to my A-levels, we had some relaxation sessions. And one of them was advertised as Reiki, which, if you don't know, is the laying on of hands. Which, at the time, I thought meant massage. So I signed up for this and volunteered and ended up laid down on a table. And boy, it was taking a while for the massage to actually start. And th- th- look back, and this woman was just kind of waving her hands vaguely in the region of my back, which I thought was a bit weird. And then she started saying, "Ah, yes, you see, everyone has an aura. What the, f- what the fuck? <laughs> and, and yes, and this I am manipulating this aura, and this is created by the body. And scientists are researching into it using quantum physics." No! You do not get to use those words to mean magic! <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that was the first one. And then secondly, I made a mistake of going onto a news website and clicking on some of the comments. Uh, ne- never do that, ever. But in particular, this one was a science story where someone had written down quantum physics is a nonsense pseudoscience created by physicists just to earn money. And I was like, no, no it's not. In my experiments, I have to interact the emission of a particle of light with the possibility of that particle of light being emitted slightly further into the future or the past provided I don't know which way round it is. You do not fucking make make that up unless you're writing for Doctor Who, which gives you a lot more kudos than calling yourself a quantum physicist. So so that's why I'm here, and I want to talk about the basics of quantum physics. And I'm going to try and stick with Einstein's rule that everything should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. Sadly, I'm up against what Richard Feynman said, which is, no one understands quantum physics. (laughs) But I'm I'm going to try my hardest. So the first, there, there are six postulates that we have to learn in our quantum physics lectures, which I think is pretty good going only six, because that's less rules than most major religions. So (laughs) we're we're already winning there. Um, The first one is that every particle actually exists and is described by a wave function. And this is a function of where it is in, in space. Every point in space has a number. And if you square that, you get the probability of finding the particle there. Everything is probabilistic in quantum mechanics. And so, you've got that, but it's not a wave. It's not a wave, this is just a demonstration of how bad scientists are at naming things. And I've got a bit of a further demonstration of that. Because this, this is a way of writing the wave function. And this is called a ket vector. But sometimes we need to use a wave function written slightly differently. So we have it like this. And that is known as a bra vector. <laughs> Thus proving that this is like really bad puns and also really needed to get out more. <laughs> so that's, that, that's the first postulate. Two, f- two, three, and four are all about taking measurements. And the idea is that when you take a measurement, there are only very specific values you can get out. Things come in, like energy, come in lumps. And that's why it's quantum physics. Quantum just means a bit, uh, a, a, just a, a bit on its own, not continuous. And the interesting thing is, when you measure something, the universe doesn't know what it's going to be, be, come out as before you measure it. But as soon as you measure it, the wave function I just showed you immediately changes to match that measurement. And so peop- yeah, it's confusing. <laughs> yeah. So you're actually by measuring, you're changing the universe. And more than that, one explanation that people have come up with is that for every possible value of the measurement, you're actually creating a new universe in which you measure that answer. I think actually it's more than that. I think creating new universes makes you be makes you more like a god. Which I'm the <laughs> god. Which I'm sure um, was really good for the self-confidence of all these physicists who, because of lack of social skills, were all still giggling at the fact it was called a bra vector. (laughs) There's another postulate of quantum mechanics which says you can't have two particles exactly the same, which is very interesting physically, but boring for the purposes of comedy, so we'll move on. (laughs) And, And finally, the last postulate is one of the biggest equations of the 20th century. Okay, I've I've cheated a bit there. That's that's me disobeying Einstein and oversimplifying it. That doesn't actually tell you anything at all. But um, what I've got here is a better way of writing it down. And here, the the interesting thing about this is basically on this side over here, we've got how the wave function changes. And on this side, we've got effectively the state of the universe. So even though... (laughs) So, yeah, okay, it's a bit of a problem having to, having to understand the entire universe in order, to, uh, in order to actually do anything in quantum physics. But we do have a rule for how things change. So despite the fact I've said it's all probabilistic, we know how the probabilities change. It is predictably unpredictable. <laughs> Although I'm never going to use that phrase again because it makes me sound too much like Donald Rumsfeld. No. Instead, I'm, go- I'm going to go and, and just add in my one bit to impress the fact, on, impress on you the fact that physicists are cultured and quote Shakespeare: "This be madness, yet there is method to it," which is, which is from Hamlet, and the only bit of Shakespeare that I know. <laughs> uh, but um, what, what, so, what can we do with this? It turns out, rather than um, needing to deal with the entire universe, we can ignore most of it because it's a long way away and all of bits are nearby uh, we can kind of average out and so <laughs> yeah. and so in a semiconductor um with a type of material the mineral um, uh, the title there we go i got in i got in of the title yes
3: <laughs> Woo!
4: there we go and um, In a semiconductor, we can average it out and do lots of hard maths to take into account all the other electrons and protons in the material, and then we get this instead. (laughs) Which you may have noticed is basically exactly the same, except I put some stars on some things, which basically say it looks a bit lighter and we can ignore the rest of the universe now. (laughs) And so we can actually now take this and do interesting things with it. And we can work out how to take our semiconductors and make transistors. And we can take those transistors and make computer chips and then connect to the internet. So we have, in fact, just made it possible for people to talk on the internet about how quantum physics, which we've used to make the internet, is nonsense. (laughs) And I don't know why we fucking
0: bothered. Thank you very much. That was Michael Conterio. Well, still to come, we've got malaria and man flu. But first, another song from Dan Woods. Um, This is a
3: song I wrote for when I was in a nativity play and I played a shepherd. And I wrote this song uh, for my shepherd to sing. And it's a love song. There's a girl in the village called Sally, and her beauty is truly divine. But Sally, alas, has a husband, so Sally will never be mine. But one night when her husband was sleeping, she invited me out for some fun. I still dream of that one night with Sally. She's the only girl I've ever done When I dream of that one night with Sally As I'm here watching over my flock These feelings start building inside me I don't know what to do with my... Smock (laughs) Now my master's at rest and the stars have come out I think some of you have guessed what this song is about. (laughs) I wonder what it feels like to kiss a sheep. I'd sit beside a young one in the mud. Would she lead her tongue inside my mouth like Sally did? Or pull it down her throat and chew the cud? Would she nibble out of my ears at all and pin me up against the wall and book us in a very cheap hotel? I wonder what it feels like to kiss a sheep. But I mustn't lie with beast. I'll go to hell. I wonder what it feels like to touch a sheep Would she slip her hoof inside my underwear? Would she tell me what feels good for her like Sally did? Or look upon me blankly and go meh? (laughs) Could I fit all my hand inside and would I leave her satisfied? Do she prefer a little more vibration? I wonder what it feels like to touch a sheep But to lie with beast it is abomination I wonder what it feels like to lick a sheep Do you think that I could find her magic button? I imagine she would smell like pecorino cheese Or maybe she would taste a bit like mutton And if my sheep is like her breed By following where others lead Perhaps she find the time to lick me too I wonder what it feels like to lick a sheep And will it make her love me if I do? I wonder what it feels like to love a sheep. I bet it's bloody quick and feels amazing. Then I turn away and count her friends and fall asleep. It wouldn't even interrupt her grazing. I'll call myself an ovophile. Of course, we'll do it sheepy style. My cries of joy will echo through the valley. I'll discover what it feels like to love a sheep. And as I give my milk, I'll shout out, Sally. I've been Dan Woods, thank you very much.
0: The brilliant Dan Woods there. Now, malaria is a disease that kills over a million children under five each year and affects over 300 million people each year worldwide. Leah Chappell works at the Sanger Institute in Cambridge trying to unlock the secrets the malaria parasites carry in their genes to hopefully one day lead to treatments. Leah, you work predominantly on the malaria parasite. How do you study these tiny little creatures?
2: Uh, it's a mixture of methods depending on which one we're studying. The easiest to study is to look at the blood stages of the parasite because we can either grow them in PhD students, which is probably bad ethically, but we can do it another way. We get a uh, leftover bud from the National Blood Service. Uh, you put those in with a mixture of water, sugar and a few other nutrients to keep the little parasites happy and you can keep them in a cupboard at 37 degrees. And that's close enough to being in human blood that you can, uh, they grow and then you can split them up every 48 hours and have more and more flasso parasites. So they're quite easy to work with.
0: And so once once you're growing them happily in this sort of unwanted blood, what, what can you find out from them? So the thing that I'm particularly interested in finding out is you
2: figuring out which of their DNA or which of their genes they turn on and off at different points in their life cycle. So at some points they'll turn on genes for making proteins that go on the surface that help them to get into the blood cells. Other points, they'll be mainly focusing on getting bigger and fatter, ready to split into lots of more cells. So if we can sample at these different points and figure out which genes turn on and off when, it gives us a better chance of finding out which of these genes do what and maybe which ones we can learn how to kill them by being drug targets.
0: And one of the most important life cycle stages for the parasite and also for the infection of people is the way that they invade our red blood cells. What's our sort of current understanding of how they do that?
2: We're currently trying to understand how they can do that. They're very cunning in avoiding the immune system and don't seem to put many different proteins on the surface or all the same proteins so that they they can evolve around our immune system. So it's kind of analogous to the way a flu virus might evolve around the immune system. So at the moment, there's no uh, vaccine that's been used worldwide. Some are in trials, but we don't really understand that. So we're currently trying to understand which proteins from the parasite interact or kind of hold hands with the surface of the red blood cell. Um, So we're trying to understand that. My lab here at Sanger is currently trying to figure out all these bits of the jigsaw.
0: Are there particular areas of the genome that you associate with increased virulence? Because I know that some strains of the malaria parasite are more dangerous to humans than others.
2: Uh, so there are some bits of the genome which are at, at the end of molecules called chromosomes, the kind of chunks of DNA, which you've got genes that are for the, on the surface of the parasite. Those are called var genes and they vary a lot between different parasites there are other strains of parasites which have got resistant to the most common drugs which is unhelpful at best Um, so we can use DNA sequencing technology to find those we just sequence the ones with the drug resistance and sequence the ones without and then you can figure out what the difference is and then maybe figure out how to stop them doing that
0: so it's kind of like comparing different genes and then you see the ones that pop out and you see the sections that pop out and go oh well okay so those must be linked with resistance to drugs or whatever that's the hope. You have to design your
2: experiment so you don't get just uh, one thing. you get mutations that pop out that means parasites are better at growing in our incubators at 37 degrees. They'll get better at being uh, lab pets. So you've got to make sure your experiment excludes the mutations that are just happening occasionally. Uh, the trick is to get large enough sample sizes and do clever enough statistics to, to rule those out.
0: And can learning more about um, the genetics of the parasites help us to understand how malaria moved to infecting humans in the first place?
2: So uh, one other way to do that is to look at malaria parasites in different species. So one study that people in my group were involved in was looking at parasites from humans and chimps and gorillas and seeing what the differences were and you can do family trees and figure out when they moved into humans.
0: So how can knowing about sort of which areas of the genome affect particular things like how they get into the blood cells or whether they're resistant to certain drugs how can that help us in terms of therapies? Uh, So they're
2: actually not got many genes to work with only about 5,000 so the and so for example, how many do humans have? So a human has somewhere between 20 and 25,000 depending on how you define a gene. Um, but so this is you know for the number of life cycle stages this parasite can go through, it's got a very few genes. it's very impressive. it can pull off all these tricks to avoid being being killed with that many few genes. Uh, so if we ha- we can figure out systematically what all of these do, many of them are only in malaria parasites, so those are probably the ones we're most interested in then we'll eventually get down to the ones that are important for for being nasty little parasites. And then if we have that shortlist, it makes it easier to design drugs or vaccines.
0: And how would particular drugs or vaccines affect those particular areas of the genome? How would you use that to create something that will help to counteract them?
2: So the genome is more of a sort of starting point or maybe a kind of textbook. So if you've got a list of genes to work with, you can figure out what those genes are used to make. Maybe it's a protein on the surface of the cell maybe that surface protein interacts with something in the in the human but until you know what genes to start your experiment with i said we have 5000 genes very few people would think it'd be a great project for a phd student to work on 5000 genes probably need you know 5000 phd students but if you can rationally get down to a sensible size shortlist you can then do follow ups maybe you'll go down to 100 genes Maybe your experiment will get that down to ten genes, and then then you'll get somewhere.
0: And you're hopeful this sort of work will lead to therapies in the future?
2: Hopefully. I mean, now we've got more now we've got more resources looking at malaria than twenty or thirty years ago. There are now more scientists looking at this. We now have lots of reference genomes to help scientists work on these short lists. People are working at ways of breaking each of these genes systematically, so we can figure out what each of these genes do. So pretty hopeful for the future. A vaccine might be pretty hard, but at least if we can we can get closer to understanding how these parasites interact with humans and the mosquitoes that transmit them, we'll have a better chance of reducing the problem. Good evening, Cambridge. Uh, my name is Leah, and I'm doing a PhD at the Sanger Institute, as in Hinkston, so nearly off the edge of the universe for anyone who just cycles in Cambridge. So uh, I usually describe myself, not always at parties, but, you know, if I have to, as a uh, molecular parasitologist. Yeah, that's the reaction I usually get. <laughs> Let me break it down a bit. So parasitologist. So that's an intrepid scientist who ventures to the most tropical regions of the world to find cruel creatures that cause deadly diseases. Then there's molecular. That means they post it to me in my lab in Cambridgeshire, <laughs> and I work on it here. <laughs> Meh, anyway, so uh, molecular parasitology. So you might be wondering to yourself, possibly, though probably not, what skills a good molecular parasitologist needs. So there are three basic skills you need to succeed in molecular parasitology. The first is the ability to move small volumes of liquid, preferably colorless liquid from one container to another, (laughs) using a tool like this. So from one tube, you can suck, There's a button for that. (laughs) And you go, bring the liquid up, and you can carry it as far as you like to a second tube (laughs) and eject. (laughs) It's very technical and very difficult to train someone to do. Um, The uh, downside is that if I wanted to move a volume of liquid that is a reasonable quantity, like say a pint, from one vessel to another, I would have to do that action (laughs) 600,000 times. So, I suggest that you don't ask me to pour a drink at the bar later if you've got. We probably have, you know, there's probably less time left in the universe than it would take me to do that. Okay, so pipetting. That's the first sort of skill a molecular parasitologist needs. What's the next skill? The next skill is data analysis. So, when I'm doing that, I look something like this. That's a computer keyboard, in case you were wondering. (laughs) So you do this quite a lot, staring at the screen, preferably as touched over as possible to give yourself a maximum amount of RSI. (laughs) And every five minutes or so, possibly sooner, you have to drink coffee. (laughs) The third skill is thinking very, very hard about whatever problem there is, and that requires a special posture. It's something like this. (laughs) It's quite easy to mistake it for a zombie attack on the nation. <laughs> be careful. Don't take out your best scientists when they're doing that. Occasionally, you can mix it up and go like that. <laughs> Either way, if you stop sort of midway going through a door doing that pose, it doesn't really help. You may just have had the best idea in the universe, but the janitor is going to clobber you, so, you know, no use. Now, the really, truly skilled molecular paratologist will combine the three in close succession. So you will be like, pipette, think. Pipette, think. Data analysis, data analysis. The really clever trick is not to mix up the beaker of deadly parasites with your coffee cup. (laughs) Because that tends to end badly and you tend to not be popular when the lab gets shut down. Anyway, hasn't happened yet, it's fine, fine. So those are your three basic life skills. So okay, I've got those, I can begin my PhD. So I said to my supervisor, what do I need to begin my PhD? So on the first week, I was given a flask of parasites. Now, I work on malaria, a disease which kills about a million people, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. It's quite bad. <laughs> Are you supposed to laugh? <laughs> anyway, the nice thing about... Well, the nice thing? The useful thing about malaria parasites, if you want to try and learn how to kill them... I'm definitely going to t- Anyway, to keep malaria parasites alive, you keep them in human bloods. And being something that likes to live in human blood, you can keep them at 37 degrees C and they'll stay alive for a while until they need fresh blood. And then you give them a bit more. Now, fortunately, these days, we get our blood from the National Blood Service from bits that are left over and no use. I hear in the past, they used PhD students. <laughs> <laughs> the downside of this, apart from you know getting through more PhD students and having to <laughs> write more grants, was that for the look of the institute, all your PhD students look like they were regular drug users. <laughs> so you have to keep them in a darkened room. But anyway, so yeah, minor disadvantage. So anyway, I was given the flask full of parasites, and I was told, feed them with fresh blood every two days or so, split them up, they'll be fine. I said, okay, I now have my deadly parasites. I know how to keep them alive. What do I do next? I was given the protocol. The protocol had about 28 different steps to it, each of which was split into a number of subsets and came on about 40 pages. It's quite a long protocol. And I was told, this protocol, it works. (laughs) Can you see where this is going? Anyway, the protocol. Here are the parasites. Someone's done it on this before. It should work the first time. So I tried it the first time. Following every instruction very carefully on all 40 pages. Do you think it worked? No. Bollocks. <laughs> so I thought, okay, mild incompetence. I mixed up microliters and pints. Easy mistake to make. <laughs> Could have happened somewhere. So dutifully, I got more of my parasites out the uh, incubator, took them downstairs, and tried it again. Do you think it worked that time? No. Bollocks. So yeah, it's severe incompetence now. You'd think it'd be possible if someone else has done this for me to repeat it. (laughs) 17th attempt. (laughs) What do you think happened? (laughs) Yeah, bollocks. (laughs) So uh, during this, I was slowly questioning my sanity. It was 524 days, 14 hours, and 5,442 cups of coffee since I started my PhD. And it hadn't really gone anywhere. Yeah, and I had a talk the next week, and I needed some data. I learned to use Photoshop, but that was about as far as I got. <laughs> so I looked, and then I thought, hang on a minute. If I turn everything upside down and assume it was all wrong and then turn it the other way up, maybe it wasn't step seven that was going wrong. The really fiendishly complicated step that involves cutting out things and selecting things and you know, purifying what you want. I figured it out, there was a moment of enlightenment, and then I swear, you know, string of expletives, fuck damn bugger, that was about all I could say, my eureka moment, and what did I say, fuck damn bugger? (laughs) Fine, anyway, so I tried that, and you know what? I changed one thing in step two, (laughs) and it worked. (laughs) So 542 days to figure out what it was, an hour to fix the bloody thing, (laughs) a day to like, two days later. Oh, oh. Uh, yeah, there weren't enough expletives in the world to explain how relieved I felt when I had data four days before my talk. Awesome. So yeah, it's um, a while. So I've been working on this in the last six months and I finally figured out why people put themselves through this. It's the feeling when it actually works because about five o'clock this afternoon, I finally got some data that works. Whoa, <laughs> I thought about bringing you a printout, but I wasn't sure you'd appreciate the details, but the gist is there. So I finally figured out that we now know some tiny thing about what the malaria parasite does that we didn't know at 2.30 this afternoon. (laughs) Which is nice. Anyway, so I thought I probably should leave you with a cheesy pun, because I hadn't fit any more, about why biology was a good thing to study, in case that little last bit didn't swing it for you. (laughs) So I thought, you know, of all the sciences, it's a great one because it's the only one where division and multiplication get the same result. <laughs> uh,
0: you've been lovely day, ladies and gentlemen. Good night. That was Leah Chappell. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for on this Bright Club Highlights podcast. A huge thank you to Matt Davis, Dan Woods, Michael Contario, Leah Chappell and all of our performers on the night. And to play us out, a final song from Dan Woods.
3: Uh, This is a song to remind you all to wash your hands and not sneeze on buses. (laughs) My girlfriend caught a fever She had nasty, sweaty hair She had shivers, she had sneezes Now she's in intensive care And I read all the books, I know the horrors it unleashes. A disease god meant for pigs has crossed a barrier of species. The virologists have studied her, they've done what they must do. The nurses all are weeping, they can't believe it's true. But the doctors shake their heads. And to the churchyard we must send her. For man flu, man, man flu has crossed a barrier of gender. (laughs) And is this my revenge for all the love you did withhold? You said, oh, stop complaining. It's just a silly cold." No, you should have made me chicken soup and tucked me into bed. But now you know how ill I really was because you're dead. The boys of under two are now routinely vaccinated. The vaccine is no use now that the virus has mutated. It's realigned its target from XY to double X. For man flu, man, man flu has crossed a barrier. Now womankind is fading fast. They don't have long to live, but they're Husbands think they're faking it, no sympathy they give. The disease will pull them under, and soon their lungs will fail. The government won't intervene because they're mostly male. We're heading for extinction. We cannot procreate. And it's a pity we'll no longer get to lie about your weight. The female of the species, to death she must surrender. For man flu, man flu, man flu, man, 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 man flu, has crossed a barrier of gender. <laughs>